reading from the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus responds to the teacher, saying to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live, and what follows is this parable. But wanting to justify himself, the teacher asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them, and then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and whenever I come back I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three, do you think, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This fall, we began our fifth year of living into a transformed congregational structure one that we hoped would hold the capacity of this congregation to engage the varied ministries we hold in a spirit of discernment. Church structures are not the love language, and they're not the passion of everyone that I know. And I realize I may have already lost half of you (laughs) in the mention of structure in the first sentence. And we have every reason to be suspicious of structural talk. Uh, Structures have not always served the church. They have squashed the movement of the Holy Spirit. They have excluded and they have marginalized various communities. And they have been inflexible. And in worst-case scenarios, they become artifacts and idols that are propped up and preserved, even though the bottom fell out of them many years ago. And with all that in mind, though, this congregation wrestled with a way to follow Jesus together that was spacious, that was manageable, that was holistic and discerning. And in that season, then, the vocabulary of just peace entered our conversation. It was 2011. The World Council of Churches had been gathering the insights that they had received during the decade to overcome violence from 2001 to 2010. It was a decade uh, named Churches Seeking Reconciliation and Peace. And these insights then were being gathered and they were being presented at an international ecumenical peace convocation that was in Kingston, Jamaica, where the framework of a just peace was presented and discussed. And some of us will remember that our pastor then, Weldon Nisley, went to be at that gathering as part of a Mennonite delegation. This convocation had the hope of laying a new 
a new foundation for the worldwide Christian church to reach a consensus on justice and peace, as well as finding hope beyond Christianity, aware that the promise of peace is a core value of all religions and that the way of just peace reached out to all who seek peace according to their own religious commitments and traditions. What is this just peace? Simply put, the way of just peace continues to ask the question, without peace, can there be justice? Or, without justice, can there be peace? It is a way of thinking that acknowledges that too often humanity has pursued justice at the expense of peace, and peace at the expense of justice. I'm sure we can imagine a few such scenarios in our life experience. When I heard this for the first time, I thought that the World Council of Churches was playing and reading right out of the, uh, the Peace Church playbook. The way of just peace. Acknowledging that, too, in the Bible, we wrestle deeply with texts that are troublesome and challenging to a way of thinking about God's hope for justice and peace. There are texts in scriptures that associate violence with the will of God. And it is on the basis of these texts that sections of the Christian church family have legitimized and continue to legitimize the use of violence by themselves and others. And the writers of the Just Peace document were suggesting that we can no longer read such texts without calling to attention the human failure to answer the divine call to peace that today we must interrogate these texts that speak of violence, of hate, and prejudice, or call for the wrath of God to annihilate another people. We must allow such texts to teach us to discern when, like the people of God, our purposes, our schemes, our animosities, our passions, and our habits reflect our desires rather than the will of God. I'm going to repeat that. We must allow such texts to teach us to discern when, like the people of God in the Bible, our purposes, our schemes, our animosities, our passions, and our habits reflect our desires rather than the will of God. Some of you will remember the Mennonite Central Committee campaign years ago, let the Christians of the world agree that they will not kill one another as a starting place for international peacemaking advocacy. Just peace also suggests that the world can come together around a vision in which justice and peace kiss, and we need to, exactly because we live in a world that is filled with stories that are soaked in violence. Many continue to reel from the impact of wars around the world, Ethnic and religious animosity, discrimination based on race and caste mar the facade of nations, and they leave ugly scars. Thousands are dead, displaced, homeless, refugees within their own homeland and within this country. Women and children often bear the brunt of many of these conflicts around the world. Women are abused, trafficked, killed. Children are separated from their parents orphaned, recruited as soldiers, abused. Citizens in some countries face violence by occupation, paramilitaries, guerrillas, criminal cartels, and government forces. 
Citizens of many nations suffer governments obsessed with national security and armed might. Yet these fail to bring real security year after year. Precious Mother Earth has her skin torn open and her blood and bones extracted for our consumption. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. In response, the way of just peace is an effort to keep in front of the church not a compartmentalized peace witness when we think about one area of violence and forget about or ignore another area, when we think only locally and ignore the rest of the world, when we pay attention to what impacts our lives and not the lives of others, but rather invites the church to keep four areas of discernment alive. Seeking peace in the community, so that all may live from fear. Seeking peace with the earth, so that all life might be sustained. Seeking peace in the marketplace, so that all may live with dignity and seeking peace between peoples so that human lives are protected. The idea being that these four areas of discernment and response comprise a whole. They comprise a complete circle of the peacemaking questions we are facing as a body. And I think it works. I have yet to think of an area of peacemaking that doesn't seem to fall within one of these areas. And so this morning, and for the next three weeks in worship, we will explore the key texts, the lectionary texts of Just Peace, which will be followed by a couple of adult forums every Sunday that will be very concrete about praying for justice and peace and practicing justice and peace in each of these four areas. For example, in response to the theme of seeking peace in the community today, at 11.30, Melanie Neufeld is leading a prayer walk through Lake City meeting on the sidewalk out front. And Grace Blosser is leading an adult forum on gender and sexuality in the meeting room. Prayer practices and discussion. Now I realize that was a rather lengthy trail to follow, but hopefully it gives some context uh, context to what we're trying to address over these next four weeks. And in the few minutes I have left, I want to explore the theme than of seeking peace in the community so that all may live free from fear, looking at the key text used by the World Council of Churches, Luke 10, that parable we know as the Good Samaritan. When we reflected on this passage as a pastoral team, I asked Megan and Amy and Melanie first to listen for the places of fear in this story. And I was surprised, or maybe not so surprised, how quickly we could connect with fear. The expert in religious law, seeking to justify himself, asks, And who is my neighbor? That's a scary question. The answer could change their life. The answer could undermine their perspective on truth. The answer might not bring the justification they were looking for. The answer may be something they want to retreat from avoid or ignore. The answer may call into question their unearned advantage and social location. They may wish they never asked the question in the first place. We also noted the fearful postures in the parable, bodies passing by other bodies, bodies crossing the street to avoid getting too close to other bodies, distance and avoidance as postures of fear. 
Then there's the obvious fear of the one lying on the side of the road. Is this it? Am I done? There are things I've left undone and unsaid. Please, God, I'm not ready. Will no one help me? Will no one stop? And then there's the fear of the Samaritan. Do I have what it takes to help this one? And if this injured one knew who I truly would was, would he refuse my help? And then there's that innkeeper employed to behave in a helpful way, pulled into this mess by the Samaritan. What will my neighbors think? What will the other guests think? Recuperative care was not on my to-do list when I woke up this morning. I don't have time for this. I have to keep up with all my other work. Fear, fear all throughout this passage. And so we began to ask the question, well, how can we overcome the fear of asking questions that risk a shake to our foundations, our assumptions, our social location, our popularity, our expertise, or our rightness in a situation? Who are we prepared to listen to? Who might our teachers be that we would have avoided or ignored for fear that they might challenge us and make us uncomfortable? What situations do we feel a yes to address? Overcoming fear to stepping and stepping into the unknown. It is true that there's fear and there's anxiety that run through this passage, but there is an honesty about Jesus' teaching, which puts it all on the table, which I hope we can connect with. That we can acknowledge and be honest about the barriers that we experience. Barriers that keep us from following the way of just peace. And to be honest about that. And ask ourselves, when fear is preventing, interrupting, and blocking what we know to be Jesus' invitation, how do we hold that with grace? Believing that there is a yes in Jesus that compels us beyond fear to seek peace in the community. I'll be honest that one of the fears I come up against most often is the fear of being a disappointment. When an unhealth, with a very, very, very unhealthy side dish of thinking I can manage or control others' perceptions of me. Which leads me to very often be a slave to pleasing people and avoiding conflict at all costs. In August, I received two letters from women that have been clients of the Day Center over the years, both describing how they were disappointed with me. That I hadn't reciprocated their kindness, caused them to question the sincerity of this church, and had made them to feel rejected and unwelcome as participants at the drop-in center. Not one, but two letters of that that go right to that vulnerable place in me. And it would have been easy to stay with the fear and avoidance. I could get defensive. I could engage in requisite self-loathing. Oh, they're right. Or simply avoid them. To cross the road and walk by on the other side of the street when I see them on the way to Fred Meyer. Is that the yes of Jesus, which seeks peace in community? In our text, the Samaritan was true to what he believed to be the yes 
and approached the one who was hurting, offering companionship with a presence. Whether that was the right thing or the good thing, that couldn't have been known. But discerning what response might lead towards healing and restoration, sometimes that's all we have, is a direction with a whole lot of uncertainty. And so I responded to both women, acknowledging the hurt they felt and the disappointment they experienced, and expressing the hope that we could talk and be with each other in that experience. And one heartily responded, yes, that that was what they had been longing for. And we've met, and we've listened to each other. And then there's the other. No response, not a word. She hasn't spoken to me in two years unless absolutely necessary, and I have no indication that change is coming, regardless of my openness or my intent. Is there another yes in this situation that I have yet to hear? Maybe. But in the meantime, I I learned to live in that not-yet, uncertain, unresolved, messy place that just peace compels me to walk through and walk towards. We're not given a map to show us the way to get to that inn, not a guarantee that we will arrive. Speaking of uncertainty and giving up some control of the outcome, I remember some years ago, it was within the first year that we were here uh, serving as community ministers at Seattle Mennonite, and there was a group of folks on the, on the streets that had been camping out in a, in a building down the road from from the congregation building that still stands. And there was a group of them gathered for an evening of cards and drinking and hanging out, and things got out of hand. Nobody could really totally describe what occurred, but one person ended up stabbing three individuals and then running off into the night. And some of you will remember that time. That was probably the first time the SWAT team was ever at Seattle Mennonite Church as they tried to coax said individual out of one of the houses that we owned. But, you know, consequent to that, there was a lot of fear in the community. Uh, People on the streets uncertain that this individual would do it again because he did go to jail overnight but was released the next day. And so we felt this sort of upwelling of fear and anxiety uh, and also the idea that retribution could be very well on the table. And being good Anabaptist Mennonite peacemakers that we are, we thought, what? What could we do? What could we offer this situation? How could we walk towards a just peace in a community that was in fear? Let's start with a conversation. I remember planning for that conversation that we were going to invite all sides and all parties to meet here in the prayer room at church and think together about how we might facilitate or you know something that was going to be hard and difficult and hopefully get get somewhere beyond fear. And as folks agreed to gather and eventually showed up that day, the one who had pulled the knife sat there in sort of that nervous way of unsure about what was going to come at him. And we waited for the victims, and they came in one by one by one. And the last to arrive was a guy that had been stabbed three times and was actually in remarkably, you know, rough shape. And he wasn't coming, and he wasn't coming, and we were waiting in the room and sort of having awkward conversation and... Uh, And then Gary arrived. And Gary, you know, stepped into the room, sat straight down, and we were about to begin, and he just started into a conversation with 
with Dave, saying, you know, you hurt me, and I have these wounds on my back, and there's bandages there that I can't reach, and I'm told I have to change my, my bandages every day, and, uh, and I'm wondering whether you can help me with that. So this sense of then Dave saying, well, yes, I'd be more than happy to help you with your bandages. Uh, when can we do this? And, and Gary says, well, how about right now? And they got up and they left the prayer room and went into one of the bathrooms back there and you could hear them, you know, joking and whatever and took off his shirt and changed his bandages and then they came back out and into that place where then the conversation was easy as sort of that started the flow of apology and reconciliation and hope that we need to be together more than we need to be apart. We need each other. And nothing that we planned, nothing that we thought would emerge, that profound gift that Gary offered Dave in, in, in inviting his hands to be transformed from hands of hurt to hands of healing, so that was the ultimate, you know, sword into plowshare moment that I could imagine. But we stepped into that with a great amount of, of uncertainty, and I think that sort of talks to, continues to speak to me as one of those stories of uh, those of us who have our best intentions, <laughs> that we find ourselves to be skilled and planful and otherwise uh, able to manage an outcome of peace. We don't have. We don't have the control here. Thanks be to God. Which then I want to circle back around to simply say that the way of just peace, when, when Jesus asked who was the neighbor to the one who was attacked, the answer spoken is the one who showed mercy, not the good Samaritan the one who approached the one in need, not the ally, but rather the one who acted like an ally, not the peacemaker, but the rather the one who offered care and comfort. In other words, Jesus' yes is a verb. It's an action. In a world that is soaked in violence, it's an approach. It's an offer. It's an intention. Not to gain recognition or be known for our great deeds, but in humility amidst great uncertainty and ultimate lack of control, seeking peace in our communities so that all may live free from fear. May we be so courageous and inspired. Amen. <laughs>